Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. JR Hildebrand's here with me to break down everything that happened in the Indy 500, which we'll do later on. But first of all, we're joined by Marcus Ericsson, the winner of the race. Welcome. Thank you. Thank bored, you bored to hear that yet? Or is... No, I, yeah, I'm never going to get on board <laughs> of hearing that. So <laughs> You'll be glad to know that I finished the uh, the top 10 rankings of the race uh, overnight and you were 11th. You just you just missed out oh. on, uh, on the top <laughs> Maybe 10. Maybe next really time. Just, just snuck in. <laughs> just snuck in the top 10. What did you... You're uh, never going to get, you know, you're gonna, never going to get a hook, up the hook of the I see. Of I, so I was thinking about it, actually, that like the tear that you've gone on since we Is that didn't because of you in the, in the top 10 rankings. Maybe it was just, uh, you know, needed that little bit of motivation, you know, to get on the list. And that that was what's made the difference. Plus, this is my first Indy 500 in person. <laughs> so now I'm yeah, your good luck charm. I have to big, come to everyone now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you guys are a big part of it. <laughs> what did you uh, What did you get up to after you won? How did you celebrate? What was the What was the story of the night? Uh, yeah, it was uh, a lot of media and stuff here. So I think I was at the track until like 8.30. We can uh, tell because your voice is definitely yeah, good. Yeah, my, my voice is... Not podcast good, but <laughs> I'll try. Uh, so it was a lot of stuff here at the track, and then quickly got changed and went downtown and, and met up. I had almost all my family, uh, my mom and dad, and my, one of my brothers uh, was here, and uh, my manager, some of my backers, has been there since like I was 15 years old. They were here, so it was it was so special to share this moment with all of them. You know, they haven't been to a race for a long time because of the pandemic and everything and they were all here for this weekend and, and to win with, with them here was, was very special so went downtown and had dinner with them and just enjoyed the moment and then went and saw some drivers uh, and had a few drinks and, and then back and got a few hours of sleep and then up early this morning for more media stuff uh, all day so it's been it's been pretty full on since the checkered flag for sure any uh what's it called um it's like burn wine or something, right? Brand wine or something? Uh, brand, uh, brand, any, uh, any of that drink? Uh, no, no, I was... Uh, it's quite hard to get hold of in Indianapolis. Yeah, Indian exactly. There's not, not much of that here in India, <laughs> but uh, no, there was a couple of shots of tequila that went down there for sure. I have a very blurry photo of Marcus Erickson's winner's ring from last <laughs> night that I'll have to pop on Twitter when we get, <laughs> get that going. But yeah, it was awesome to see you come out last night. We were uh, we were all excited. We were, we were anxiously awaiting the winner to show up at the bar <laughs> at some point so it was awesome to have you there uh, cool. has it sunk in yet no for sure not yeah i think yeah, i'm still sort of pinching myself and and trying to understand if it's real or not you know <laughs> it's uh it's just uh yeah it's just incredible and uh, I, I think it's gonna take a while I'm curious. One thing that I I've I was wondering about your race when we were I was kind of sitting here thinking about some of the things that we might talk about was, you know, it's it's uh, we all know as drivers the more the more 500s that you do you you kind of really begin to appreciate how long the race is and there's this kind of cadence to it that either flows in your direction or not you know throughout the race. I'm wondering from your perspective. How, what was that experience like as you went through the race? Like, was there a turning point that you suddenly thought, oh, I'm definitely in the hunt for the win? Or did it did it feel a little bit like that from the beginning? Like, what was kind of your mindset as the race played out? Yeah, so I, I went into the race with like a quite a clear plan. So I knew I was going to have a really good car. I mean, we've been so fast all month. So I felt really confident going into the race. And, and I had a game plan, obviously starting fifth, I wanted to run up front in like top five, top four for the first really 150 laps, just get myself there, protect my race car, work on my race car and, and sort of get myself to 50 to go and, and running in P3, P4. And, and that was like everything was going according to plan. You know, I was running there, just looking after the car, fuel saving, working on fuel numbers to make sure 
if I needed it later in the race, I knew how to do it. So everything was going really well. And then on one of the stops during the second half of the race, when it was a caution, uh, there was a bit of a hiccup because I was going to leave my box just when Jimmy was coming in. So I had to stop for him and, and let him sort of go past. And I lost from P3 to P8. And at that moment, I was like, oh, this might be it. Like, I'm not. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get back to to win this race. So that was tough, uh, but I managed to sort of pick a few cars off and I was running six, I think, before that last stop. And that was really this, the, the key there. I managed to save some fuel to get myself, I think, three or four extra laps compared to the guys ahead of me. So when they peeled off, I could just go full, you know, full cream on the engine and, yeah. and, and do a few really fast laps. And that jumped me all the way up to P3 just behind the McLarens. And uh, and then I really knew I had the chance, you know, because obviously that was when Scott got his penalty as well. So so then it was really game on, and the car just came alive there and then when I really went full power and, and full attack and, and managed to pass both McLarens and, and open up that gap that I thought was the race-winning move. <laughs> and I was just praying, please, no yellow, please, no yellow, yeah. and just counting down the laps, and then, of course, there is a yellow. <laughs> How do you um, how do you hope this win is going to sort of change perceptions of your you know your career and and you as a driver because you know I think there's been quite a few instances like we joked at the top of the show about you missing out on on our top ten in, in the first half of last season but I know you've you know you you've been left out by the media at times and and not spoken about as much as maybe you probably deserve to be and it's you know something that's happened you know quite regularly throughout especially the time you've been in IndyCar but also obviously you were fighting at the the back of the grid in, in Formula One as well so I guess this is easily the biggest win of your career and the, the biggest event of your career so far. So how do you hope that kind of, you know, impacts your, your kind of, not your legacy because you know at near the end of your career, but how people interpret, you know, how good you are as a driver? I think, first of all, I hope that, you know, next year when I come here to the track, there will be at least some Ericsson shirts or caps or something to buy. There, in the there's shops. none in the shop? <laughs> it was zero. Like, Maybe they sold out because no, you were no, so no. popular. My, yeah. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> no, my, uh, there's a local guy from my newspaper in Sweden that was here following me this month. And he, he went to every stand around the track and there was not a single Ericsson item uh, available. So I'm Come hoping on, that's something I'm hoping will change because there was pretty much every other driver he said, but not Ericsson. So <laughs> that's first of all. Uh, no, but joking aside, I think, you know, that's the, this race is so special, you know, it's so unique. And, and I think that's the cool thing that, you know, I will always, whatever happens now in my career, I will always, you know, be an Indy 500 winner. And I think that's for me is... is um, it's very big, obviously. Uh, but with that said, it's it's not like I'm happy and gonna sit back. You know, I'm I'm leading the championship now. I'm in the hunt. I want to win this championship, and you know, I'm gonna enjoy this moment now. But then, you win it once. You want to win it two times or three. I mean, it's it's. I'm still still young enough if you compare to a few <laughs> others in this championship. So, but uh, but yeah, it's definitely my biggest moment of my career so far. So sort of thinking about that, like as you look ahead. You know, with the perspective now as a as a one time 500 winner, do you kind of just look at look at your future and think, okay, I want to stick here with this team. I want to come back. I, you know, obviously the championship is is ongoing, like you said. So there's there's one championship. There's maybe multiple championships to be thinking about down the road. Like, does this give you more of a long view of what you want to achieve now that you've kind of checked off one of those? big ticket items like how does how do you how does this affect how you think about where your IndyCar career goes or your racing career goes from here yeah I, I definitely think it does you know it's um I think last year for me was really a breakthrough you know where I sort of established myself in the series and and got uh, those first two wins and p6 in the championships so I think that was really like a very important year for me but obviously winning the 500 is going to be even you know it's a lot bigger than that obviously so um yeah, for sure. And, and and my plan, you know, I, I want to stay as long as possible in the series. I want to try and win more 500s and, and championships and, and races. So it's definitely something I want to do and, and want to stay in Ship Canasta Racing if I can. It's, it's a great organization, a great team. And I think this month has been so impressive to be part of that. You know, just putting five cars on the grid for the Indy 500 yeah. is an achievement. Just putting them there. But to put five cars that all five have the speed to win the race is just incredible. I think that's been so impressive to be part of. I think yeah, I wanted to ask you about your kind of your overall career, really, because I think it's really interesting 
your first 500 with Schmidt Peterson was was going well and, until the incident that you had there and then uh, I always remember the the first the Texas race for the first race for Ganassi on an oval where the, the you had a problem with the fuel hose and you were like pretty much dead set on a, at least the top 10 maybe a, a top five in in that race as well so I, I think some I think some people have looked at this like you had the podium in Texas and that was some sort of massive oval breakthrough where you learned how to drive a car on an oval for the first time and then you come and win the Indy 500 but for me it seems like maybe you've always had the you know the ability and you felt quite comfortable for a long time on the ovals it's just a case of there's so many more things that you have to put together on an oval for you to win a race especially at somewhere like the Indy 500 when it comes to breaking the strategy down and stuff like that as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We, when I came here to IndyCar, uh, one of the big reasons I wanted to do IndyCar was the ovals because I, all my career, I loved like every track that had a lot of high-speed corners was like my favorite tracks. And all always like comparing data with my teammates, I was always super strong in the high-speed stuff. So being European and never done ovals, I was like, that must mean I'm really good at ovals <laughs> <laughs> because that's just that's all it corners. Is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was like that was yeah. I really wanted to try ovals and I came over here and obviously ovals is a very different type of racing to anything else, but I felt comfortable on them from the get-go really. And I felt like I came, you know, got up to speed quite quickly, but I also realized how much more than just being fast on an oval, you know, to win on an oval and be successful in a race on an oval is so much more with strategy, pitch sequence, working on your car, working on your tools, being like a step ahead of your car. And it's like, so many details that makes a difference on the ovals, especially on the super speedways. So I think that's something that I've learned over the years. And like you said, I've had sort of, there's been flashes of it there, but I haven't been able to put it together. And then this off season, I just put a lot of work in to try and really study. You know, I had Dixon on board videos for many years that I had available being a Ganassi driver. So I, I spent a lot of hours watching that. Speaking with my engineer Brad uh, about ovals with Dario as well, so you know I, I have the best resources available, and I just try to use them this off season to really step it up on the ovals. And for sure, it's been paying off. You know, there's no doubt about that. I guess um, as well, you mentioned some of the people who've helped you along the way, and 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 people who've been there since you were kind of like 15 years older. I guess from from the start of your your car racing career, but the, this Ganassi team is quite unusual in a way because. I guess a lot of people who are focused on your car haven't won a 500 before um, or, or maybe haven't won championships before just because of where they've been positioned in Ganassi over the years. And I guess the the 9 and the 10 car historically have been more successful at the, the 500 and have been around for, for longer in the team. So how does that feel to, to give back? You've got, um, you know, you've got Brad Goldberg, your engineer, and Nicole Rotondo, who's works for Honda on your on, on the engine side. And then you've got Mike O'Gara, who's masterminded all this crazy strategy for you over the past couple of years like Nashville and, and some races like that it must feel great to give them all, all of them their first 500 as well as yourself yeah for sure you know it was a true team effort and I have a lot of rock stars on my on my crew there so it's uh yeah it was a true team effort and like I said you know we won this race around that you know last pit stop with the strategy and going longer and a great pit stop by the guys and then in the end there, I had to have the power from Honda to, to be able to stay ahead because no one else had been able to stay ahead on a restart until that in the end. So I knew it was going to be really hard because of that strong headwind on the start-finish straight. I I really was worried that it was not going to be possible. But um, yeah, it was a really great feeling to, to share that with all those people. And like you said, the eight car, you know, it, it we created the eight car in 2020 when I came to the team and then we picked people from different programs to to sort of come uh, on the eight car and and we've been you know like any, anything you're a team in within the team and and i've had brad with me all the time and mike as well and, and it's been it's been really good and and that's again i think us working together over multiple years it's really been so important for them to understand me as a driver and for me understanding them because that was a the thing there in the second last stint when i started to go to like biggest fuel saving mixtures that I could go and I started to lift as much as I could they knew straight away what I was I was trying to give them you know fuel to go long so I didn't even have to say it I knew that they understood what we were planning to do so we, like we're at that point we don't even have to cum communicate we know exactly what we're thinking and I think that's um, that's very important especially in IndyCar now these days when it's so competitive and so many good cars and drivers and teams out there. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I guess as as a final question from my side before we let you go is, you know, the Ganassi cars in particular, even among the Hondas, were super strong this year, and I'm curious. They've had they've they've it, it, the team has had its strength. Obviously, last year we talked at length about how you guys were sort of the most consistently good team. All three of all three of the primary cars just up, kind of in the mix every weekend. This year, coming to Indy, it seems like there was an even bigger step that was made. I remember <laughs> at the open test, I bumped into Alex like at the end of the day, and I was like, "Hey, you, you know, you came over and said hi or something," and and I was like, "Yeah, how's your how's your car, or whatever?" He was like, "Oh man, it's really good." <laughs> and I was just like, "Damn it, you know, like, that's just he's not, so happy all the time. It's hard to tell. Yeah, that's not a good sign." Um, so I like I'm I'm curious from your perspective, just within the team how you feel like they've made that step. I mean, to have arguably been in a position where, you know, had Jimmy had a little bit of a better run in the top 12, you guys were looking at having like all five cars in the top six. It's pretty insane. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And I was super impressed. A bit like Alex said, we fell straight away from the open test that our cars were so good. And all month, you know, we've been like top of the timing sheets every single session, I think. So... The team has done an incredible job. Uh, I think the cool thing is that, you know, last year we were super strong as well. But then in the race, we were struggling a little bit in traffic. So I know how much effort they put in the off-season to develop uh, the cars for this year, for, for the Speedway, for the 500. And I think all that work was really paying off. And I even asked them, like, guys, what have you done? Like, the cars, how can the cars be so much stronger this year? And they're like, yeah, we found some stuff in the off-season. I'm like... Okay, <laughs> that's good. Let's keep I'll doing that. Yeah. You're like, but, why didn't you do this before? Yeah, exactly. What took you so long to get this sorted? <laughs> no, it's, it's an impressive group, and that's the thing. You know, it's it's not. You know, we talk about Brad and all these guys, the engineers and everyone, uh, but it's also all the people back in the shop and everyone that puts in all the work in the off season. And it, you know, it's it's such a team effort to win a race like this. And and yeah, I'm truly honored and proud, really proud to be part of that organization. Well, Marcus, thanks for stopping by. It's nice to record in person with you in the same room with with JR as well. And you're not you're not punching us in the face for for missing you out of anything or anything <laughs> like that. So that's good. We can all sit in the room and uh, be happy and make jokes together. So that's good news. <laughs> Enjoy your uh, flight to New York, where you're off to do some sort of media tour, where you'll be on lots of famous American TV shows. I imagine. I'm sure you're looking forward to that with the way your voice is at the minute. Uh, it will be fun. I'll get through <laughs> it. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Speak to you soon. Thanks very much. All that's right. Marcus Erickson, everyone. Thanks, guys. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So that was Marcus Ericsson joining us on the Race IndyCar podcast. It's been quite lucky this week, haven't we, JR? We've had the, the pole winner on Monday come and join us, which was which was really cool. And then now we've had the, the winner of the race straight after the race, which it has its pros and cons. Obviously, it's amazing to have Marcus straight after the race, but maybe it would have been nice to have him with a, a better a better sounding voice. <laughs> but we still respect the fact that he dropped by and it's always he's, he's always one of the most fun people we talk to, but at the same time, really genuine as well. And it's just... You know, you hear a lot of drivers, obviously, because they have to, talking about their team and their sponsors and, um, you know, how their team have been really helpful, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, is quite often the case. But I think it's, you know, that that team, as you mentioned, and we're talking to him about um, the work they've put in, in the off-season and stuff, you can really see how much of an impact they have and the, the quality of personnel that Ganassi has. And it's one of the things that sets them aside. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of blame the pecking order of IndyCar on who's got the most money resource yeah. but Ganassi you know the, some of the people they've got there are absolutely incredible aren't they well and I think just the way that they've managed to structure the organization to do these things I, we bumped into Chris Simmons last night and you know you could tell just you could tell just from the way that he was talking about their day that in his role there which is a little bit more now removed from just being on the nine car and you know that he was Scott's engineer for a long time but um, now in more of a 
I guess, kind of technical director role at the team that he was just the way his tone, the way he was talking about it. It was clear that he looked at every one of their cars as like equal, equal opportunity, equal effort put in to try to have as many bullets to go win the race as they could, you know, and that they, they, they needed a few of them to be able to pull it off in All the end. Um, but that, you know, I think that just speaks to the mentality that exists there, particularly when it comes to this kind of thing. And, and I guess I, if I put myself in Marcus's shoes or, or Tony's or Jimmy's or whatever, for how good they've been, especially showing up here at the Speedway, and their stuff has just been, like, on rails out there. You know, when I'm driving driving around them, it's, like, unfair, <laughs> almost, you know? And uh, and I don't say that in a bad way at all, just it's, it's like, it's, it's sort of rare. Respectful. Yeah, it's rare that you can see it that clearly, I guess. And so I think being within the team... You, you for Marcus's position, like you can't help but have a tremendous appreciation and respect for the fact that the guys have done, you know, have have done that that much that well to give you um, that kind of machine at the place that it matters the most, where everybody else is also pushing all their chips in the middle of the table, you know, giving their best effort. So it's it's cool to hear, and I think, and you can tell he means it. Yeah, you know? I think because of the five hundred, you kind of taught yourself out of the fa- the kind of whole favorites thing, don't you? So. Even when you're like at the test, looking at how good Ganassi are, and then in practice you're looking at how good they are, it's still like, are they going to be that good in the race? Like, you just, it's just the way the 500 is, isn't it? You just never know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and you kind of talk yourself out of having favourites or, or predicting because there's quite often someone will rock up and have like an amazing practice and, and look really good all the way through, and there'd be nothing in the race, like yeah. nowhere. So it, it does happen every now and again, or, or relatively often, I guess. So let's go on to your race, JR, before we before we break down the the entirety of the race because we've had a nice little start there with Marcus. Let's. Uh, take a breather from from the rest of the race for a second and, and just go into yours because it was a really interesting race on the outside um yeah. give us a little run through about how your strategy kind of worked and some of the decision making you were you were going with there yeah we basically we talked about it sort of in advance of the race like how are we gonna find ourselves moving forward we, our, our car the car was kind of all over the place over the course of the month like we did not we we were combating consistent issues but not consistently in the window of being able to figure it out so so a little bit of uncertainty and and frankly we had a really tough carb day um like we only just at the very end of carb day kind of got the car feeling like oh okay this is this is like something i can work with at least um and so just there's some sensitivities for everybody and i think we were a little bit aggressive kind of on uh, at the tipping points of some of those sensitive aspects of just the way the car works the arrow of the car and all this stuff um and and so going in the race you know we didn't we didn't feel like from where we were at that we had we hadn't shown for ourselves any like real strength in terms of being able to just carve up a group of cars you know everybody was going to have a hard time doing that um, and and we didn't feel like that was something that suddenly we were going to be great at. And so, um, but the car has had pretty good speed and we've been pretty good in situations where I've just got to like make up a gap to some other cars. Like it's been good in sort of slightly dirty air. Uh, that That is one of the things that over the course of the month are the pace in the car in those kinds of situations has been has been pretty solid. And so... Uh, we we chose early to go with sort of an undercutting strategy, which you know you're exposed to yellows by doing that. And so that was just a risk that we felt like we had to be willing to take. Like if we were going to go long and just do the same thing that all the cars around us were going to do, we didn't feel like that was going to enable us to take advantage of anything that we were actually good at or that we we thought going into the race that we were good at. I mean, that's, that's a big part of the 500 just period these days is I think having a bit of a come to Jesus meeting with yourself and the team ahead of time, like what are we at? What are our strengths and weaknesses and how are we, how are we going to give ourselves a chance to separate from the group of cars that we're around? If basically we're, we're as good as the, you know, sometimes you qualify further back cause you have a bad qualifying draw and you're like, Oh man, you know, I got a machine that's like ready to be at the front. For us, it just wasn't one of those years, you know. And so, how are we gonna how are we gonna get further forward? Um, was was sort of the challenge. And so we, uh, and, and that when you're 
particularly in the mid-pack, once everybody gets into a fuel save mode, Marcus was talking about how in his last stint, he was able to go long, go full rich in clean air and rip a bunch of fast laps, basically for the overcut. When you're in the middle of the pack, you don't ever really get that opportunity because there's always a car in front of you. Like there's even if even if you're generally on a on an overcutting strategy, there's always some other car that's also on an overcut strategy that you just can't you can't ever get enough clean air to really rip the lap time. Um, and so we pitted early in the first sequence. We're able to, you know, we were basically basically every time we actually did it throughout the race, we did make up. A number of spots in the later in the race it's how we got back up to the front but um on the second caution we got caught out on that having p- already pitted at indy basically you've come out a lap down so we you know whatever we'd already pitted we're a lap down we cycle up to the front you get the wave around now you're all the way at the back again along with whatever other cars are left that had done that um and we basically just got kicked to the back I think three times when it was all said and done, but but twice that was on that exact type of sequence, like a caution came out the lap after we pitted. Um, there was one situation where we should have basically taken free service in one of those scenarios when you get when you get the wave around and you and all the other cars that get the wave around and go you know connect out back to the back of the field. It's kind of typical that then all of those cars will make a stop because then you then at least you can reset your strategy and you're actually in a position to go longer than the cars in front of you with tires that are just as good and and whatever else we missed an opportunity to do that and that that cost us getting caught out by the next yellow also which was so that was frustrating because we were sitting there like past the halfway point and i'm looking up at the pylon and it's like okay so we're way at the back <laughs> and twice probably at that um, point. on more used tires and we're going to go short compared to everybody else yeah. on the next stop here. Um, so it was it was uh, a little grim at that moment. But uh, fortunately, from that point forward, the undercut for us did work and we didn't we didn't get caught out by it anymore. Um, had some good restarts and um, ended up 12th at the end of the day. So. I think our our kind of bogey was like Connor, Alexander, Pagano. We had been running with those cars prior to kind of getting screwed up by all of that. I think, I think just because it was such a track position race, when we were around those guys, we could run with them. So I think we we could have ended up a bit further up the the pecking order in the end. But um, the guys had great pit stops, and um, all in all, you know, like we were talking to Marcus, just the race kind of flows your way or it doesn't, you know? And so we were, I think we kind of made the most of what we had once we were past the halfway point, basically, which which we felt good about. Well, just for context, I mean, the you know, talking about being in the bogey of like Connor Daly, you know, Carpenter, good at Indy every year, you know, going to happen, fact. Um, you know, Rossi, Andretti, you know, yeah. the, the resource that they have and, and what they're able to bring to the track. And you're obviously driving for a team that is, you know, has less resources than everybody else. Doesn't have the 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 person power behind the scenes that that they have, or the yeah, just basically any of that resource that someone like Andretti would have. So uh, I guess there was probably frustrating points in the race for you yesterday, but to to come away with a twelfth and be in the same you know kind of zone as those guys is a it's got to be a successful day for the team, hasn't it? Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, this year as much as you was, want to win the race. Yeah, obviously, and and I think you know my my mo these days is more like you know when you're qualifying outside the top 12 basically that okay yeah you can like push all your chips in the middle of the table on a strategy to win the race but realistically that never like that doesn't ever really work you know like you'd be better off creating kind of a robust perspective that's just has good odds of being able to move forward and i think that that's that's what we chose to do. That's what I've done the last few years. And and typically by the end of the race, I'm kind of sitting there like, well, okay, we didn't have some things go our way. But in terms of what we did to the car, how we chose to make some of those last minute adjustments and, and whatever, um, you know, what we did in the pit cycles, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, we, we squeezed a lot out of it by the end of the day. And so I think as as a group, you can't help but be 
you know, uh, it's you know, you're not like stoked about a day like that at the end of it, but I think pretty pleased. I, you know, everybody on the squad was like, man, yeah, that was from where we were at and kind of how this didn't work and how none of this really worked in our favor. Um, we did a good job to make the most of it, and and that's what it's about sometimes. Let's uh, recap Marcus briefly. Uh, I guess the only thing that I wanted to kind of add to, to what he said, he, he mentioned Dario um, without mentioning his surname or, or really going into too much detail there. And I kind of wanted to to add to that as one of the things that I found so impressive about Marcus's win because we saw him in a kind of 2019 Simon Pagano spec at the end of the race there, weaving on the straights. And, you know, there's one point where he was pretty close to the pit commitment line, I think, um, bringing Pato all the way down to the inside and then back out to the outside again. And um, I guess something that maybe people haven't seen of Marcus or, or don't give him the respect for is, is, you know, he is someone who can control the race from the front when, when he is there. And, you know, some of his IndyCar wins have obviously been from the back, like the Nashville win or the, um, even the Detroit win, he, he took the lead late there on yeah. the, when Will Power had the, the problem and couldn't restart um, under the red flag. But even then, you know, he held off some really strong cars at, at that point at Detroit as well. And I don't know if he, he gets the respect for, you know, being able to control the race from the front, basically. And there's no bigger race to control from, from the front than the Indy 500, especially when, as he was talking about, how difficult it's been to lead a pack here over, yeah. the, over the last month. And I think a, a big part of what he does is he watches so much video, goes into so much data, but he'd actually sat on the infield on Saturday night with Dario and gone through on board and, and looked at, you know, what what will happen if I'm leading the race at this point with with four or five laps to go. Yeah. And it turns out that's exactly what happened. And it's that kind of preparation, I think, maybe people don't see from behind the scenes that underpin these kind of wins where, you know, would would Marcus have been confident enough or felt like he had the experience or the knowledge to defend the way he did at the end of that race, the biggest race in the world, with Pato Award trimmed out, you know, flying behind you. Would he have had the confidence to pull that off and, and, and to, to execute those kind of that weave in motion and, and, and to know where to place the car and, and how to hold Pato off at the last corner when he, when he made the dive on the outside of, of turn one? I'm not so sure. And I think, a, I think a big part of, we were talking about the team behind the scenes there at, at, at Ganassi and, you know, there's a reason why they keep Dario around when they've got people like Scott Dixon and Tony Kanaan on the team already. It's because of the input that, that he can bring. What, what, what are some of the things that, or, or maybe anything that we haven't spoken about so far that impressed you about Marx's win there that, that just stood out to you from a driver's perspective, someone who sits behind the wheel of the car, obviously? No, I think, you know, he, he outlined it pretty, pretty clearly, just that came in with the game plan to just be there, basically. And, and I think when you have a car that you know is is as good as their stuff is that's an easy it's easy thing to do basically is is to decide that that's how you're going to approach the race um he, you know he mentioned that or, or we were talking that the cars are particularly good in traffic this year like that was something i was around scott dixon once he got kind of shuffled back last year and you know he was just stuck like there and and he never got his lap back and never never really got back into a position to challenge you know it was clear throughout practice that they had sort of reconciled that aspect of their performance um so that they were in a position that they were prepared to they were prepared to have to they were prepared to be on the wrong side of a strategic move they were prepared to get shuffled back in the pack and have to work their way back forward they weren't just like we gotta be up at the front in the top among the top three cars, or else this is gonna go to hell. Um, so to have that flexibility gives you, I think, a sense of ease in terms of how you're gonna approach it, and kind of knowing that you're gonna be able to come back from it. But uh, just having that long view, and and I think at the end of the day, the thing that's most impressive to me, just watching a brief replay of the end of the race, is not becoming flustered when you get the red flag i was surprised that we went red and it was just going to be green white checkered like that to me was a little bit like okay i get it that we don't want to go we don't want to just end the race under caution and i think it, in the end it was the right move to get the race spooled back up uh you know we we've seen the 500 ending under yellow can beat can certainly be a bit of a letdown and we've had that happen but um at the same time just to to be in a position where you're so easily in position to win uh, then get stuck in a position where you're kind of on the back foot like you're you're a sitting duck here usually as a leader coming to come into the green on a restart nobody's on fresh tires maybe that was 
not whether he was thinking this or not, maybe that was an advantage because my experience during the race was certainly that when everybody is on fresh stuff and you know you're full of fuel, those were the kind of moments that as a following car, you could be just good enough. Uh, you know, trimmed to be flat through four or two or whatever. And as the tires wore out, it was harder and harder to be able to do that. So that maybe worked in his favor a bit. But um, to switch into that defensive mode and do it as well as he did uh, is, you know, that's a that's a race winning move. That's a race winning mentality. And, and not every driver would have been able to pull that off. So uh, that was definitely an impressive sort of, finale from his perspective to put the cherry on top of what was already a great race for him uh let's talk about p2 and and felix as well both of those guys had great 500s good months overall appeared to be the strongest chevy team certainly during the race Uh, i mean i was not up there enough to really like watch it go down but after renus crashed it didn't really seem like ed was consistently in the mix so maybe talk a little bit just about those two teams and and particularly what what you saw from the mclaren duo yeah well i think there was a sort of uh, a group of people who were quietly confident that pato was going to be fighting for the win there at the end and he had a few places to make up obviously from the start but i think as soon as he got into that lead four lead five group he looked like he was uh, you know like a coiled viper mm-hmm. and he was just sat there saving fuel which he said was the case uh, obviously you know, Pato is going to say that, but, you know, I think it was genuine. I think his car, it, it looked awesome. He, he had no problem passing Dixon there. Um, and obviously they swapped it between them a little bit tactic-wise, just trying to save fuel. So, yeah, I think his I think his car was awesome and he was more trimmed out than any of the rest of his teammates. Um, so, so a big risk to take there, but he was willing to put everything on the line to try and win that race. And we saw that at the end. I wondered... Um, yeah, the, the the move at the end there, I wondered if he could have maybe stuck it and just tried to, to go around the outside. We saw Tony Kanaan a couple of laps earlier do the same thing thing to Felix Rosenquist. I mean, Felix was attacking Tony at this point, so it was, it was a little bit different. Marcus had the track position and he was a little bit ahead. Right. But Tony had stuck it out around the outside in turn one and managed to make it stick through turn two. Pato said he felt like Marcus might have put him in the wall if he'd have tried that. And the, the other element of that is that Pato was running less downforce and he might want to have not, not wanted to go that high up the racetrack because at that point you can throw it in the wall and that's the end of your race and you've lost second place. So it's a difficult one. It's obviously the, the, the race, this race is more important than the championship to a lot of people and a lot of teams. So it's a, it's, it's a difficult kind of tightrope that you walk in there where do you throw P2 away going for the win or do you take the P2 and take the big championship boost? Because, you know, Mark is leading the championship now and Pato second. So we've had a huge you know, switch up in, in, in fortunes there. I think Pato, it's kind of hard to characterize this without, you know, Pato doing it himself. Uh, but we've heard him speak in, in multiple kind of interviews now and, and the press conference and it seems quite clear that he wants to see more from Chevy next season and felt like that was where his weakness was compared to, to Marcus because he felt like the car was, you know, he, he was really complimentary of what Aaron McLaren SP has been able to do year on year. And I think Montoya was a good example of that because he basically used a not very nice word to describe his car from last season. And then at the end of this race said, yeah, we're like night and day different, basically, um, to, to kind of paraphrase how he described it. So I think the, the you know, props to the, to, to the Aaron McLaren team, that, you know, they're the top Chevrolet team this year and have done a fantastic job, especially in the race. Um, but yeah, I think Pato, bit of a rallying cry maybe from, from, from Chevy. And I think Chevy have definitely made a step up and we talked a lot about it on the pod about you know, the amazing starts of the season they've had winning the first four of, you know, the first four or five races, which is incredible in itself because that Chevy's attitude in the off season was basically, right, we need to improve everything. So everyone go and improve everything. And this is 10 years into an engine cycle. So I've already been trying to improve everything for 10 years. You know, it's not something that you just like, all right, so there's just, we're just going to find another three horsepower. Yeah. It's not something that happens. So for them to go away, in the off season while developing a new engine, by the way, that they didn't know was going to be delayed until, you know, a couple of months ago to be able to pull out the gains they have is absolutely incredible. And again, I think they've taken a step forward here at Indy, but obviously Honda have found that little extra bit as well. And they've got Ganassi who've, you know, absolutely ruled this off season. It seems in, in the package that they brought to the, to the speedway. So yeah. And I guess, um, you know, you mentioned Ed just didn't quite have what it took to, to fight at the front today to, to battle with those top cars. And then Penske was just a bit all over the place, weren't they? We had, Scott McLaughlin was 26th, um, took all race to basically get into the top 10 and then crashed at turn three. We had 
Will was had an amazing start of the race and made up quite a few positions. I think he ran as high as seventh, but then started to drop back and realised his car was awful. And it took him the whole race to sort his car out. And by the time he'd sorted it out, he had no track position. So he was not in contention. And then after Will had dropped back, Will um, Joseph was the next one who was up into into PA and then stored in, in the pits, which they're still not really sure you know, what the cause of that was, whether Joseph isn't sure whether it was his mistake or whether it was something to do with the car. Will had stalled in an earlier hmm. an earlier stop, but he said it was his fault. So kind of hard to tell what was going on at Penske and whether it was whether the two stalls were linked or whether it was just a you know a bit of driver error or, or something going on there. It's hard to hard to tell at this kind of early point after after the race, but really um really hurt their championship um, situation. But at the same time, they're closer to the championship lead with their three cars and they have been in the last two seasons when they've had bad Indy 500. So it's not the end of the world. But I'm sure Roger's got to be getting pretty upset now that this is, you know, the third 500 in a row where they've not been the top the top Chevy. And to be honest, if you're not, you know, the the, the variable outside of your team is the power, power unit, right? So, you know, if... You know, if Honda or Chevrolet miss something one year and turn up with a terrible package, then there's nothing you can do about that as a team. You've just got to, you know, right. work on the car as best you can. But if it, you know, things are fairly even and there's other people doing a much better job with Chevy Chevy power, then there's you know, there's something going wrong there. And there's no for that to happen three years in a row, there's no way to avoid the fact that they're not doing a good enough job, Penske, they, they, and they have to step it up for for next year. And I'm sure no one will want to do that more than than Roger and, and Tim Sindrick and, and all of the drivers there who you know, Scotty's desperate to to win the 500. Um, you know, from from the impact of how important that race has been for him to move out here. Joseph, we know probably more than anyone in the field wants to win a 500 um, because he gets asked about it every year, pretty much uh, every other race or something. Someone asks him about the 500, and Will obviously wants to wants to win another one as well. So yeah, that's um, that was a that was a difficult race to watch for them. I, th- I felt it was like um, you know it was quite even difficult to watch from the outside. So I guess there's a lot of soul searching going on there this week. Were there any other teams that stood out to you, one way or the other, as surprises? Yeah, Andretti, I thought, would would come with a bit more than they did in the race, really. Um, you know, Roman fell back quite quickly, despite being the top qualifying rookie. And then he was one of the rookies who, you know, obviously uh, crashed at turn two there, which caught a lot of people out in the race, um, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But yeah, Roman, Roman dropping back. I wasn't totally surprised because there were difficult conditions for for a rookie to be in with the the heat and the you know the the gusts of wind we got and stuff like that. Um, so not not totally surprised to see a rookie dropping back. But I thought they might I thought they might be able to work on that and make him a bit more comfortable for him to be able to to pick it up a little bit. So so that was a bit disappointing. And I guess Devlin did a good job to to finish nineteenth and, and not crash as, as as a couple of the rookies did. Three of the rookies did um, with with Callum Eilock crashing at turn two as well and Jimmy Johnson. So. To, to, to basically not crash was a good thing, I thought, for a rookie. Get the miles, you know, finish the race and, and, and do a good job that way. Was Devlin the top finishing rookie? Um, no, David Malukas was the top David, finishing yeah, rookie. Top. Yeah, yeah. But De- yeah, Devlin did a good job. And I think, um, you know, Mark, I was confused by because his pre-race press notes kind of said he had the best car he'd had over 10 years. And if he was in position, he was going to fight for the win, basically. And then the, 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 the post-race tweet was, we we didn't have the car to compete anywhere near the front today basically so that was a very confusing situation going on there but props to Alexander Rossi because I felt like I do feel like for a long time now the strategy approach there with with Alexander has been risk it for just just risk it basically because it's you know it's over two years without a win now they're all desperate to win we know they're capable of winning they've not been able to put it together but I don't personally I don't think the answer to that is to then take outrageous risks and I felt like they probably could have done that yesterday but they didn't and you know it's like the uh, one of the team bosses spoke to me earlier this week about the basically the 30% rule and it's basically that if you execute everything in the race and stay on a reasonably sensible strategy and have good pit stops you're going to beat 30% of the field just through crashes or bad strategy calls or whatever so I felt like that was a lot of what what we had with Rossi but also really picked up at the end there he and Simon Pagano and Helio Castanovez all came through the field, um, did a great job to to reach the top ten, which was which was good. So Andretti as a whole was a bit disappointed with obviously Colton Herter, his crash on Friday, sending him to the backup car, basically wrote his race off, and his car was was hadn't been tested before the race, so it was pretty awful in in the race and pretty undrivable, I think, um, unfortunately for him. But props to to Alexander. I think that that like I said, that their, their team has been very. Uh, 
kind of like gamble-tastic over the past uh, past while trying to get this win and they could have done that again uh, yesterday but I think taking a top five might just build a bit of momentum there and just give them a little bit of security to, to, to go into the next few races you know maybe it's not the win they wanted but maybe it's something that just picks the team up a little bit all right we've had a good result we've had a strong result we've, you know when we do everything right and we execute we are capable of going from 20th to 5th so if we can qualify a little bit higher in the next race you know, and we do everything right and execute everything, and there's a chance we can win the race. You know, that that I think that's a much better approach than the the kind of what we have seen at times from them. Not all the time, but a lot of the time, I think I think it's been you know gambletastic. And you know, we're pretty sure he's signed for McLaren now, and and that's a done deal. So it'll be nice to see him finish his time with the team that he's been with since he came into IndyCar and obviously won the 2016 500 with, um, you know, to send that off on a, a better note than it has been for the past two years and, and kind of start a new turnover, a fresh piece of paper, if you like. Yeah, Scott Dixon, JR, it's, uh, this is a tough one because he, he did almost everything right for the for the whole race. Um, well, he did do everything right for the whole race until until the last stop when I think he picked up a bit of a, a draft coming, you know, a bit of a slipstream coming towards the pits and then he missed the pit lane speed limit by... Uh, we understand about one miles an hour. So mm. to, to miss it by that much, is just like for anyone in the field that you wouldn't want that to happen to, it's probably Dixon after all the bad luck he's had yeah. fighting for this next 500. So from, from what we know about him, um, I guess my answer to this, this question is he'll bounce back very quickly, but how do you feel he's going to, you know, you're a driver who's been through your own kind of trials and, and tribulations at the speedway and across your career in, in various different teams and different circumstances, different races. Um, you know, how how do you com compartmentalize this now and, and put it to, is it, you, you know, how do you do that as a driver? Everybody's a little different in terms of how that, how that works. Uh, I can tell you for sure w without, without needing to talk to Scott that it stings a lot when it's on you. And I think it's unfortunate timing for, it's, it's obviously unfortunate timing because it's the 500 and all the rest of it. But that aside, just some of the some of the tension that has i feel like been created around the nine crew and he's been pretty candid and vocal about some of the issues that he feels like are still unresolved just in terms of personnel and kind of what's going on with uh with his his particular group uh you know among the ganassi squad as a larger as a larger whole um you know, this is this is not kind of how you want for. This isn't how you want for your races to go when when you're in that position, and that's kind of been a bit of the rhetoric lately. And so, I think that these, you know, when you have races, kind of when when it ends under caution and you're P two, but you know should have gone to the end and and could have easily won. You know, that's something that lingers for its own reasons. You know, you you feel like one got away, but. Uh, this is these types of things. I've had a PLC violation in a few years, like 2018 or 2019, maybe. And uh, you just feel like, as a driver, you just kind of feel like no matter how else the race, no, no matter what else well I did that day, that was on me and it totally killed my my result, my team's result, all of those things. So regardless of kind of where you're coming from at that point, it's just on you and that sucks. But, uh, you know, Scott, Scott bounces back from all of this stuff all the time. And I feel like he's just so even keel about how he goes about doing what he does. This year doesn't have the feeling of a year that just in a general sense from a performance perspective is he's, he's had other years like this where he's strong as hell at Indy, but that doesn't really translate necessarily to having that same degree of pace and strength and competitiveness at other places. And it still feels like there's some kinks to be worked out for those guys to make, make that move. Um, so I personally, I think that this is, this is an unfortunate thing to have happen with the timing over the course of the season, because they go into a long stretch here that, if they don't if they don't kind of resolve some of the things that are creating for that bit of tension within the team uh it it just feels to me like something that could end up lingering and continuing to affect their performance on the whole so 
uh, a, bu- a huge bummer for him for to just be in that situation. The guy deserves to, you know, have another ring. And uh, but when it's on you, it's just like there's there's nothing else you can do about it but take it on the chin and, and move on. Yeah, it's, it was a funny sort of aspect of the the race in the sense that Marcus won because it just felt like you know Gassi, all the talk about Ganassi, the, the the cars, how good they've been for so long, and then. Uh, you know everything in the race started to go wrong you know even before Scott's incident we had Alex Pelot have exactly the same thing that happened to Scott the year before happened where it kind of was ready to run out of fuel and the a caution had come out and the pit lane was closed so he couldn't pit and then had to take emergency service which means you have to go to the back of the field so we've spoken about how difficult it is to, to pass here you've obviously you know from your perspective talk, talked about that as well and, and your team and how difficult that was and seeing other cars get dropped back into your kind of zone and not be able to to move around so yeah, at that point, it just felt like Ganassi were in, were in big trouble, didn't it? So for, for Marcus to win the race was 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 pretty cool. JR, so turn two, just from a, a driver's perspective, give us a, a little bit of a flavour of what that was like because you saw Roman Grosjean, Jimmy Johnson, Callum Eilat all have their races ended there. Renus VK was the first. Um, significantly, I feel like he's been kind of forgotten about because that happened at the start of the race. Yeah, what happened with Renus? He, was he kind of He lost it at turn two. Just like by yeah, himself, the same as the other, same yeah. as the other crashes at turn two. Um, Tony Kanaan was asked about it in the press conference, and he, he said it hadn't felt like an issue for him all day, and didn't really understand kind of what was going on there. Did you have any sketchy moments at turn two, or did it feel like a corner that was particularly problematic? It was definitely the, it was the hardest corner to get right on the track. It was where you felt the wind gusts the most, and the wind kind of sh- was shifting throughout the race. Like there was points where it was just a basically a straight tailwind down the back which is you know you know you're gonna get some push off of two but it's pretty consistent you know that's that's sort of standard for that corner one way or the other so it just exacerbated the problem that you've kind of already got by by more than normal at points it was a little bit of a cross cross tailwind through there which definitely did make it just inconsistent basically um you know what was what was happening certainly as you were running in traffic is that so turn two is going through through you so you go through one one's pretty banked at the entry and then flattens out as you get to the apex likewise turn two is sort of flat bending in and then builds a bit of banking and so you can get in a situation where particularly with the tailwind if you've turned in too late into two on the flatter part of the racing surface the car the rear of the car can become pretty unstable as you're like rolling it almost feels like you're kind of rolling down over a bit of a crest into the banking of the corner so there's an instability that you're fighting there that your options are kind of put up with it basically and bend in slow and late or just turn in early Um, that negates a bit of the instability that you're facing but really increases the understeer risk going to the exit of the corner so when you're in traffic you're trying you're constantly managing the two of those things trying trying to do things a little bit differently uh, but it's a corner that without question there's a lot of like mid-corner or exit lifting happening after you've tried to be committed to go back to throttle just because you're kind of you're just guessing basically like okay, am I, if I, have I done the first part of the corner right by enough? Like, what's the wind exactly like? What's my exact following distance of the car in front of you? You sort of have a feel for all of those things, but lap to lap, they're just changing a little bit all the time. So the, so the sort of gusty factor and the wind changing directions slightly, uh, I think just was catching cars out. And, uh, you know, I think that some of the, some of the more veteran drivers, you just, you know, you know how to predict some of that stuff a little bit better. I did notice among the among the rookies, uh, they were certainly just the rookie class as a whole was for sure the most inconsistent on track in terms of where they were just placing the car lap to lap, which surprised me a little bit, to be honest with you. Like that, that for me from the moment I got to the speedway seemed like a very important thing to to establish like, I think this is this is just where I'm gonna build my car to work. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna bend in this way. I'm gonna put the car in these places. Sometimes you play around with it a little bit to try to get the car to finish the corner differently when you do have a tailwind or something like that. But 
uh, I felt like through the race, even you know through practice and and even through the race, following some of the rookies around, just not lap to lap, kind of being in in completely different places, you know, through the corner and and some of that I guess is just once you're in the race and you really are in a pack of ten or twelve cars, it's harder to get it right. You know, you can't be you can't be totally committed and put the car in the same spot every corner because, you know, being seven car lengths versus seven and a half car lengths off the car in front of you affects the way the front of the car works and the arrow is working and, and all that kind of stuff. And it really is, uh, it, it is like right on the edge of that being easy or hard every time to get that right. But um, I think that, you know, at least some of some of there were certainly some drivers out there that I feel like weren't prioritizing just putting the car where it needed to be lap to lap. And and that for sure, I don't know. I haven't watched the race in its entirety. I haven't seen those accidents, but um, that certainly that's something that I know if I wasn't doing that, it would be putting me at risk of just suddenly losing it, you know, whether that be understeer or oversteer or, or in these kind of situations, it's usually some combo of both renus was the only reason i asked about him was just because uh on on fast friday i was following him for a little bit and it looked kind of sketchy to me like he did that car did not look just tidy and it looked fast but um looked a little like twitchy in some places on track that that like it probably just shouldn't you know, to be able to get through 500 miles. And so um, I thought that was an interesting one to to have, have him be the first one to go. Even if you've got the best car control in the world, if your car's sketchy at India over the course of you 500 miles at 220 miles an hour, it for that long. it's like, not going to happen, is it? It could be Pato or Renus or any of these guys. And it's just, you know, you got to kind of know you got to know what you've got and you've got to have, you got to know that it's got to be there for the end. You know, you need to be able to get through all of those different phases of the race to be able to, you know, work on it. And, you know, guys like Scott Dixon, I can remember in, uh, 20, I don't know, 2017 maybe, or 16 or 17. It might've been the year that he ended up, uh, with the big crash, but you know, he just went backwards in the first and he was on pole led the race. Um, but it was like, he was doing exactly what like a real of the car was awful. Like I passed him. I ended up going by him almost like at the apex of turn four. Like he was, it, the car was so bad he, that he was like losing it mid corner, like washing up the track, like just trying to kind of hang on and get to the end of the event. And so, uh, that's sometimes just what you have to do rather than pushing through it the whole time. Yeah, I definitely recommend the anyone listening to the podcast goes to thehighfromrace.com and checks out uh, Matt Beer's brilliant feature on Scott Dixon's kind of trials and tribulations at the 500 because that's something that Dario Franchitti talks about. And a kind of, I'm not going to call it a theory, but a, a kind of different way of looking at it maybe that Scott should have has come so close to winning the 500 so many times and should have won it so many times. But Dario kind of offers a bit of a, well, he was only that close in the first place because of how talented he is. And some of the cars he's had over the years have been pretty sketchy. And he's able to, to, to Dario calls it carrying the car. Mm-hmm. So when the car's not so good, obviously, just being able to extract the- Throw it on your back. Yeah, and exactly. Haul it up to the front, yeah. Yeah, so that theory is worth worth checking out on our on our feature. And I didn't write it, so I can tell people <laughs> to, to go and have a look at it. I'm not very happy you didn't watch the race yesterday, Joe. What were you doing? <laughs> I was, uh, well, I was having a nice time with some friends. Hole in the mail. Uh, yeah, well, uh, during the day, yeah, <laughs> that is what I was doing for sure. So, Jack, first 500 in person, what do you think? Yeah, man, it's something else. I mean, I've covered a few in, you know, from, from back home and, um, you know, remotely and stuff, but never actually attended the, the race. This was the first time I've been here since the start. So, it was really good to get the whole, the whole picture. And I've got to say a big thank you to all of the teams and, and all of the organization, IMS and, and IndyCar for some of the stuff they've, you know, rolled out for me and, and helped me to do while I've been here. They've been really helpful and, you know, showing me some great views on the Pagoda and um, around the track. And, um, you know, there's been some great, some great moments for me personally, just being able to learn more about the history of the Speedway. And, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it does immediately hit you when you walk through the gates. Like if you come through 
uh, gate two, which is between turn one and two, obviously. Um, you've got the museum with the fountain outside and there's there's statues and there's the brick, the, the commemorative bricks on the floor where people can pay to have their, obviously their name written on, on bricks outside the museum. And it's just like, it hits you like, I was going to say it hits you like a ton of bricks. I can't say that. That's <laughs> so bad. Um, but it does hit you when you come through through the gate, you know, what a historic place this is and what it, what it means to, to so many people. And, and you feel it even in the, even in the press room, you feel what, what the event means to people and the the history behind it. And then, yeah, the, the build up on Sunday was just like nothing I've ever experienced for sure in, in, in any event that I've been to, whether it be motorsport or, or not. And I guess the only thing you can vaguely compare it to is, is like some sort of huge music, music festival. Um, yeah. but even then that doesn't really, doesn't really do it justice. So yeah, it was great. I spent, I had some, some some weird and wonderful experiences while I've been here. It's been I was going to say, what's what's like one thing that that like is either bizarre or or surprisingly stood out to you over the course of the experience? So I've basically had the attitude of just saying yes to everything, basically. So we there, there was an invite to uh, basically for the media to go on the red carpet before the race on Sunday. So I was like, yeah, why not? Like it's probably probably maybe should be doing some work or doing something else but i'm gonna stand by the red carpet why not there's some like famous people so uh, i met like a u.s general um mm-hmm. and the my favorite part of the day was interviewing one of the thunderbirds who told me about oh uh, that's badass yeah man he was telling me about um you know how they um maneuver and the timing behind it like i was lucky enough to see them practicing on saturday like they literally do a practice flyover on saturday to make yeah. sure that they get the timing right so they land over the track when the anthem's going so it's yeah Hearing them talk about some of the maneuvers they do and all of that kind of stuff was was incredible. And then yeah, I got to I was chatting to Zeke Elliott. That was so nice. cool. Yeah, he was my uh, he was my late brother's favorite American football player. So <laughs> to speak to him was like perfect. That was so great. Um, yeah, even like Dwayne Washington Jr. from the Indiana Pacers. Um, yeah, so many like so many stars on the red carpet. That was really cool. Um, but that but that what that did was um, there was a reason why I was talking about that. I'm not trying to you know be like oh look how cool i am i was on the red carpet <laughs> it's even these people who have nothing to do with motorsport who have nothing no knowledge about it whatsoever um uh totally understand and just get the the event and that it's a huge thing and they they understand the atmosphere and and basically yeah it's like the best atmosphere you can possibly you know experience and even people like ezekiel Elliott, who you know plays for the cowboys plays in a massive stadium and to to, to great fans um acknowledges how cool this place is and what an experience it is and the only other thing i'll say is if anyone's listened to the podcast who's not been to the 500 before the access is unbelievable like if you're used to going to formula one races like just get ready to get on the elevator and like go up 10 floors (laughs) because you can walk down pit lane you know there's cool people like jl hildebrand walking around who you can get your picture with and sign your autographs and all that kind of stuff You, you can literally stand behind where they're doing pit stops and stuff like that in, in the middle of the Indy 500, like, and you just have to pay a little bit extra to get like a special, a special pass, which I think, you know, for someone who's used to going it's to still really races, cheap too, yeah. basically, like to get a pit and garage pass and okay, like to have a race mode and you know really be down in the pits is a bit of finagling, but I mean, I, I think still just the fact that anybody with a pit and garage pass can just go stand out on the grid before the race. I mean, it's like that takes some that takes some you know upstairs pull at an f1 race to be able to to oh, just, like you got to like literally know a team principal or, one be of a the CEO to or, or whatever or be paying be spending like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars yeah. at an f1 event to be able to have that kind of access you need to own a betting company or a crypto co- company <laughs> to be able to do that kind of thing yeah. in formula one like yeah, it's exactly. just not gonna happen what was with the the rubber eagle on your uh airbox in the, uh, in the build up just one of the do one of the guys on the team just Threw down, and uh, we definitely did have the most patriotic livery this year. I was I was going to say that one of the things that was kind of awesome, just total random side note, was, you know, we do the driver introductions where you're walking from the green room, like, up onto the stage, and, the uh, you know, I guess it's Steve. The, well, it's in front of the pagoda, yeah. And Steve Aoki is, like, on the turntables right there. Yeah. That was so badass. Like me and Connor were on the same row, and uh, Connor was the perfect person, I'm sure, to like have have in my row. But we were like, dude, like that's Steve right there, dude. Like yeah. this is like we got our own little Hawkeson going on here uh, before we get up to the go on stage. So I definitely felt, I felt like the pump this year, like like I haven't. I mean, obviously, like we haven't in a couple of years, but 
but even before that, it's just so cool to, you know, on a, on a sunny day rolling out and people were just, it just felt good. It felt good to be back. It felt, I felt super energized as a driver, just getting ready to get in the car and get going. Um, which was, which was really awesome this year. It's funny you were saying about people being allowed on the grid and stuff and like the, literally the first thing I thought of was the little, the little rubber eagle on your car was the first thing I thought <laughs> of when you were talking about people being on the grid, but actually walking down the grid before the Indy 500 was pretty special as well. Being able to look back and you, you, you like, that's the other thing The you know, that how big the place is, is like, all right, so I know it's two and a half miles around and, and all that kind of stuff. But when you actually stand there while there's people in between the cars and stuff and look back down to turn four, you're like, all right, so there's a reason why these cars are covering like a football a football pitch a second, right? It's mm -hmm. the, it's it's incredible, and to yeah, I, I definitely recommend anyone who's you know able to to do it to head on out and, and experience it because you know you get an idea of the fact that you know motorsport fans can be very partisan. Formula One fans like Formula One, NASCAR fans like NASCAR, and IndyCar fans like IndyCar. But genuinely, from someone who doesn't really care about that kind of stuff, um, this is an incredible event that. You know, if you do, if you are lucky enough to to experience and get out here for, it's definitely worth doing because I'm pretty sure there's not, a, especially the pre-race, there's not an experience that that really matches this at all. So, yeah, definitely recommend it. Nothing else like it. Exactly. All right, JR. Well, that's it for this episode. It's been cool to chat to the winner of the race and uh, to catch up on your race as well. Finishing 12th in the Indy 500, not a bad result. And uh, now we can both go and get some sleep, I think. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic.